If you have a Bible um, or the sermon insert, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Last week, we looked at Luke 15, the first few verses where we considered uh, the parable of the lost sheep. And this was sort of a follow-up to what we had done the week before that, which was to challenge you to pray for just one person, to identify one person who doesn't know the Lord, and just pray for them every single day. Now, the two weeks are up. Well, what next? Let's give it another two weeks. I think what, what the Lord is teaching us through these parables and this focus on just one, leaving one, shows to us and reveals to us God's heart, that God would leave to find just one. And so with that, we are looking at the second parable in Luke 15 that Jesus gives. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 3 because that's the way the parables are introduced. And then I'll read verses 8 and 10. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we confess daily our need for you. We confess it especially in a time where we hear so many competing voices, uh, either our own voice, the voice of the accuser, the voice of the world, the voice of the people around us. And in a day and age where we hear so many voices, your voice can get crowded out. I pray, God, in this hour, as we still our hearts before you, O Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Sometimes you speak to us in a whisper, and you're gentle. Sometimes you speak to us in sharp rebuke. I pray, God, that however you speak to us today, that we would receive it, knowing that it's the Father speaking to us. And when he speaks to us, it's never to hurt, it's never to wound, it's never to discourage, but it's always for healing and instruction and blessing. So, Father, we want to receive your word this afternoon. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Have you ever lost something really important to you? Something really valuable that you misplaced, maybe you left behind accidentally? And usually when that happens, you go back, the place you go, you say, I left this here. Did anyone turn it in? And sometimes, most of the time, they'll, they'll say, well, let's check the lost and found. Now, lost and found is a great idea, but in my experience, they're actually never helpful. Because here's the problem. Anything that I've ever truly, really valued, anything that I was really upset that I lost, when I went to go find it, it was never there. Instead, what you see in that pile of lost and found is just a bunch of junk that other people lost that they don't really care about, that they never went back and they never got. See, that's the interesting thing about lost and found. Those places, everything that you value that you've lost, you can't find. Things that you don't really care about, they're just sitting there. So if you go to these lost and founds, you'll find water bottles and glasses and pens and, you know, mugs. Things that have been there clearly 10, 15 years. Nobody has valued those things. So nobody has come after them. 
And the things that we do value, we search for them, we look for them. Oh, is my jacket here? Oh, I left an umbrella. And those things that we want, they're always gone. Here's my conclusion. The things people value that get lost are never found. The things that are found are never valued. They're never sought after. Which is an interesting thing because when we think about these parables, these parables in Luke 15 can be called the lost and found parables, pretty much. And what we see here in this parable is something different, though. Because Jesus shows us that when it comes to God, anything that is lost he will find. He will find. Jesus, of course, gives us these parables, and they serve as analogies of a spiritual reality. That thing which is lost represents something spiritually lost. A sinner. And the one who is going and searching represents God. And so all three parables have this in common. All that God searches for, he finds, and when he finds, he rejoices. That's the common theme of all three. All that God searches for, that's lost, he will find, and when he finds, he will rejoice. And so we looked last week at this parable of the lost sheep as we considered this kind of challenge to pray for your one. This week, we're going to look at the next parable, the parable of the lost coin. Now, last week, I gave five points, uh, which is a lot. Um, and the sermon went a little longer than, than I had expected to. So uh, this week, I'm going to even it out, and I'm going to give you zero points. Uh, so, you know, to make you feel better. It'll probably be just as long, but it won't feel that long, because when I say in the fifth point, you're like, oh, geez, five points. So what I want to do in this text, because I had written an outline, but as I was kept on writing and praying over the sermon, I thought, I think this outline actually doesn't serve the passage. I actually think it doesn't help us understand. Um, and so what I want to do is, is sort of walk through the passage with you. I think that will better serve um, the sermon. And so I'm just going to go kind of through the passage. There's only a few verses, but I'm going to start with the context. Let's go back. In verses 1 and 2, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Last week, we talked about how Jesus had previously said at the end of chapter 14, let those who hear, let them hear. And then juxtaposed were the tax collectors and the sinners who came to hear. Not the Pharisees, not the scribes. They can't hear. But it's the tax collectors and sinners. Now they come to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we spent some time talking about why the tax collectors were hated. They were Jews who won a bid to tax... Um, in place of Rome, and that they would take extra. So they were uh, working for the enemy, working for Rome, but they were also working against the Jews because they were taxing extra. So we talked about how the tax collectors, the sinners, were hated. And we saw that the religious leaders, they were so offended by Jesus and everything that Jesus was doing with these sinners. And that's why they accuse them of receiving and eating with them. Now, we need to remember that then the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the, pro parable of the prodigal son, they're not parables given to the tax collectors and sinners. They're actually given to the Pharisees. And so the parables are given to correct 
the wrong thinking of Israel's religious leaders. That's kind of what we had established last week. And this week, I want to kind of pick up on that. Because when Jesus confronts and gives the parables, when he confronts the religious leaders, he's actually challenging them with a new paradigm and a new way to think about the message of the kingdom. And when he challenges them in, this, in these parables, he challenges them two ways. Basically saying, this is how you keep thinking. This is how you understand your religion to be. But I'm going to challenge that. And he does it in two ways. The first way is, if you notice in verse 8, he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and go search for it? Now, why is that a big deal? Because Jesus is making this parable about a woman. Now, Often when Jesus made up parables, he was illustrating, he was teaching. And so he would look around and Jesus was a master illustrator of the everyday life. He would see something and say, and make up a parable about it. But this parable about the woman looking for a lost coin isn't made up. This was actually a known story that was taught by the old Jewish rabbis. And the story went that there was a man who lost the coin and he diligently sought the coin and he was happy when he found it. And then from there, the old rabbis would basically say, in the same way, you need to search the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. You need to search the Torah, and you need to search and dig deep until you find hidden treasures, and then you'll be happy. So that's how the old Jewish rabbis taught the parable. So Jesus takes that parable, he hijacks that parable, and he changes two things. First, he changes the meaning of the parable. It's not about looking into the Torah, but it's about finding something that's lost. Secondly, he changes the main character. He changes it from a man to a woman. Now, that's interesting because if the point was simply to change the meaning of the parable about finding the lost, then he could have kept it a man. So why does he choose, choose to switch it to a woman? Well, if you know at the time of the Bible, in this particular culture, the status of the women in society was pretty low. So low that if you brought a woman into court, her witness wasn't permissible. It was discredited. So much so that actually, even in the Gospels, the reporting of Jesus feeding the 5,000 you may have heard, oh, Jesus fed 5,000, but that's not 5,000. It must have been 10,000, 12,000. Why? Because the women and children weren't included. So even the Bible kind of reflects some of that thought about women. Well, when Jesus introduces a woman to the story, he doesn't introduce her as a side character, as someone unimportant. He puts the woman front and center. In fact, if it's the, the one searching represents God, then Jesus is actually saying this woman represents God. He's putting a woman front and center. And this would have offended the religious leaders so much. What? A woman? What Jesus is doing, he's showing the nature of his kingdom. He's showing the religious leaders who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. Remember, they're offended that Jesus is talking and eating with sinners and tax collectors. So when Jesus confronts them, he says, you think you know who belongs to the kingdom. You have no idea. Let me tell you this parable about a woman. And he puts the woman front and center. And by doing this, Jesus is showing the new community that I'm forming, this new kingdom that, I'm, that I've brought, inaugurated, there is room for everyone. Tax collectors, sinners, women, Children, prostitutes, the homeless, the sick, the disabled, the unclean. Jesus is showing and confronting their assumptions of the kingdom, saying that, no, you don't understand. My kingdom is different. He's reversing all that they thought 
all that they believed. Now, sometimes we're so insensitive to the Pharisees. We're insensitive because we think, oh, they just don't get it. They're so thick-headed. But you have to understand how paradigm-shifting all of this is. Here's one, one example of it uh, meant to illustrate. I was once preaching at a youth retreat, and uh, the highlight of the youth retreat is not the praying, it's not the praise, it's not the sermon. It's that at night you get to eat cup ramen. So that's what the kids look forward to. And so the last night, all the kids are so excited, and it's almost midnight, and uh, one of the college counselors comes up, and he says, okay, we're going to do the cup ramen. We have the boiling water, so I want you to form a line. So all the kids run up to form a line. And of course, the, um, it was like the high school boys were the fastest, and so they all get the line, and then all the smaller kids. And so the line is setting up, and you know, the older guys, they're so excited. They're practically they're like dogs. They're salivating. And then the youth pastor walks in, and he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know that the college pastor, he just sees the line. He says, all right, it's, cup, it's time for cup ramen. And he goes to the line, and then he points, he goes to the very end of the line, and he goes, all right, you guys first. And so the little kids Oh, me? And they run, they get the cup ramen, and then the older kids are so angry. I'm first. This is where the line starts. And I'm sitting there watching this, and it's so cruel to the students, but I'm like, this is a beautiful lesson in the kingdom of God. Your pastor, you don't know this, but he just taught you a wonderful lesson. Uh, The older kids, they have every right. They're at the front. And the pastor comes, and with just one thing, he totally flips everything upside down. That's what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees. You think you're first? No, 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 no. It's the other way. The second way that Jesus challenges Israel's leaders is the way that he ends the parable. You see, the common pattern in these parables is something is lost, something is found, and it leads to great rejoicing. And obviously, the spiritual meaning is that when the father finds a sinner who repents, he rejoices greatly. But that was actually um, very offensive to the Jews because in rabbinic literature, the literature that the rabbis read and wrote at this time, there was a saying. And the saying basically said that when God rejoices, it's because he rejoices over the fall of the godless. When sinners perish, That God rejoices. And so here's one saying. But just as it is the delight before the omnipresent to see the strengthening of the righteous, so it is a joy before the omnipresent to see the downfall of the wicked. As it is said, when the wicked perish, there is rejoicing. And the common, so the common thought was God is a God of justice. So he he rewards those who are worthy and he rewards those who are unworthy according to their curse, according to their punishment. And God rejoices in both. And Jesus comes along and he takes that saying and he flips it on his head and says, you think Jesus rejoices over the downfall of the sinner? No, no, no. God rejoices over the salvation of the sinner, over his repentance. And so he's challenging, confronting all that the Pharisees actually thought about their religion and the system. Jesus is giving a new paradigm And the paradigm that he's giving is one that operates on a principle of grace. Not a principle of works. God's grace, it's unearned, undeserved. But Jesus is saying, but it's poured out lavishly. So all that they thought they knew and understood about God and his kingdom was challenged. And so again, understand how offensive Jesus was to them. This is why they wanted him dead. 
There are a lot of people that we disagree with. There are a lot of leaders that come in and teach things that we don't like to hear. But how many of us go out and plan to crucify them? How offensive was Jesus actually being? And, here, and here's exactly what was happening. Pretty much every time Jesus opened his mouth, he not only disrupted everything they believed, he was actually deconstructing the religion that they had formed. They had made their own religion, and they lived in the safety of it. And every time Jesus spoke, he was not only shaking it, disrupting it, but he was deconstructing it, and that scared them. It offended them. And I want, so I'm actually trying to get you to be a little bit more sympathetic to the Pharisees. I, I want you to really understand that they're not just horrible people, because oftentimes we paint the Pharisees as just these horrible legalists, and they don't, just don't care about anyone. But we have to understand how their world was being rocked and shaken and, sh- and, and shook up. I kind of think of it like this way. Um, some of you may have experienced this either when you go to college and you get a, a new roommate or when you get married and you move, you know, you live together with your, your wife or your husband for the first time. And there are just different ways that you guys do things. So maybe it's a roommate, maybe it's in marriage, but, you know, simple chores like the way you wash dishes or the way that you do laundry and the other person just kind of season and they start commenting, that's not how you do it. And what's your response? You get angry, you get defensive. I remember the first time I had my sophomore year when when moved to an off-campus apartment and my roommate saw me cooking eggs and he said, that's not how you cook eggs. And I was so insulted. You have the audacity to challenge the way I cook eggs? And you know why that, that, that got me so angry? Because that wasn't an insult against me. That was an insult against my family. My family honor was on the line. Why? Because your comment has implications that go further than me. Because now you're not just telling me that I'm cooking eggs wrong, but now you're insinuating my mom didn't teach me properly how to cook eggs. The further implication is that she's not cooking eggs either. The fourth implication is that all of us have, what, beast-like palates and we don't know how to eat eggs properly? Your comment saying you're not doing this right says much more than me. It says things about my family, about my tradition. It says a lot. It's incredibly offensive. You know, I will fight you over this. So the religious leaders in Israel, they've been following the Old Testament. They've been obeying God their way. And this was passed on from generation to generation. There were whole schools, right? Rabbi systems of the, rab- the teacher and the disciple, families, parents. They're all teaching these kids. And so when Jesus comes and he says, oh, the way you're doing religion, the way you're approaching this is wrong, it's not just an offense against them. You're saying, you're, you're saying everything that my whole family and generations above and this whole school of, this whole rabbinical school I've owned, you're saying all of us are wrong? How dare you? Jesus is saying, you're not relating to God correctly. Your spirituality really means nothing. And by doing this, he's deconstructing all of their religion as they had made it and as they knew it. You see, Jesus comes and he exposes that they were building their religion on rules and laws that weren't even in the Bible. You know, that's what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they were known for. They created their own law. So Jesus makes fun of him, and he says, you tithe even on the cumin and the mint. You guys even count how many steps you can take on the Sabbath before it gets to working. He's calling them out on all these laws that they created. 
And the reason that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, created all these non-biblical commandments is because by creating them and then following them, by making them so hard and so tough and being able to follow them, they were able to gain status as righteous men. They were, they were able to secure their position in society as experts of the law. And by doing that, they assured, we're in the in-group, you are in the out-group because you can't follow this like I can. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, they... They made these laws in order to separate themselves from the tax collectors and the sinners. And so Jesus shows up. And Jesus is a Jewish man taught in the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament better than all of them. He's obeyed the Old Testament better than all of them. But the key difference is Jesus doesn't use that to separate himself. He doesn't have a holier-than-thou attitude. But he chooses to reach out. You see, the Pharisees, they created the laws. They were in the in-group. And then the out group, they turned their back and said, okay, we need to keep ourselves in the in group. But Jesus Christ, in his perfect obedience, perfect blamelessness, obedience to the law, he's in the in group. And what does he do that gets everybody angry? He says, hey, guys, come on in. He opens the door and he invites others in. And so he's accused of blurring the lines that the religious men had spent so much time making. All this effort they had drawing to separate Because only as they were separate and different that they had identity, that they had significance, that they had security. So before we are too quick to judge the religious leaders, really imagine just how paradigm-shaking what Jesus is doing is. Their whole lives, they had been taught this is how the world works. Those who know God's law, those who obey it to a T, those who follow even the extra rules that were created This guarantees you in the in-group. And when Jesus comes and he says, no, it isn't, what is he doing? He's basically saying, all that you've lived for, everything that you're trying to obey, everything that you are following, all the things you're sacrificing, they actually don't mean anything. Imagine how cutting that was to them. How much it shook them up. So, we need to understand, Jesus comes... He gives these parables, and they totally shatter the paradigm of the Jewish leaders. Now, what does the text go on to say? Jesus gives the parable, shocks them. Basically, he says to them, he calls them out. I think of it like, imagine the Pharisees are wearing uh, pearl necklaces and diamond rings. And they're, prouding them, you know, they're proud of themselves, saying, I'm better than you because of this. And Jesus comes in with one word, shows that they're all fakes. And now they just feel stupid. The Pharisees have these nice hand clutches. I don't know why they have, clutch. they have clutches. And Jesus says, that doesn't say coach. That says coach. And they're like, oh. And now, and, and now they're undone. I think he does the same to us. When we read the parables, it exposes a lot of that in us. We go on, though. The parable Jesus gives, he's hijacking this common rabbinic saying, but the parable goes that there's a woman, she has 10 silver coins, and she loses one. Now, why does he even say she has 10 and then show that she loses one? I don't think it's just to put it in context. I, 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 don't think it's, I think it's meant to show and highlight that the 10 that this woman had, that was probably all that she had. That's why it mentions it. So she was poor. Now, one silver coin is a denarius, 
Um, and it, pro- it equaled, it was equivalent to one day's wages for the common laborer. And so some scholars have done the math and say, okay, maybe that's like $100. And so let's say one silver coin, $100. So she has 10. She has $1,000. These are life savings. Why isn't the husband mentioned? Maybe she's widowed. Maybe she's divorced. Maybe, uh, you know, she's been a woman of scandal and she doesn't have anybody with her. Okay, well, she's a, a woman in a male-dominated, very chauvinistic, misogynistic society. She only has $1,000. She loses 10% of it. That's a lot. So she goes out in search of it. And that's, that's where Jesus is taking us. But the question is, what does the silver coin, why does Jesus choose to use the silver coin? Like, what does the silver coin represent? Because previously, when we talked about the sheep, we said that Jesus chooses to use the sheep because they have the propensity to wander. Sheep are dumb. Sheep just kind of go off and they can't help themselves. And so when Jesus says that about the lost sinner, it makes sense. We have a propensity to wander, to wander away from God, right? That's what come thou found. We, we sing about that, wandering from the fold of God. Now, why then does Jesus choose to use the silver coin? And this is important because this is why it matters that he gives three different parables. Jesus isn't saying the same thing over and over again. He doesn't like the attention of just talking and wasting words. No, he has a point to it. And I believe the, the reason that Jesus chooses to use a silver coin is because he wants to highlight the value of every lost person. Jesus identifies the lost sinner as a silver coin to signify that every person has value. And listen to this. Whether they are lost or whether they are found. Your value is not only because you are saved. Because that would mean nobody else has value. That would lead to us treating other people like they weren't important. But the point is, even when you are lost, you have value. This is very consistent with biblical teaching because the Bible affirms from Genesis 1 on that all of us are made in God's image. And because we're made in his image, we bear his image, we have a value. And the silver coin is actually a perfect illustration because when you would pick up a Roman silver coin, whose image would be on it? Caesar's. This coin bore the image of Caesar. So Jesus is saying, you guys, every lost person is like a coin. And your value comes because you bear the image, not of Caesar, but you bear the image of God. And so for this reason, the most devoted saint who loves the Lord and serves to the most rebellious sinner who curses God and runs away Both are made in God's image. Both have the same inherent value. Now, of course, sin in our lives mars the image. It fractures the image, but it never gets rid of the image. And and some of us, you may confuse what that image looks like. You may deny it. You may not want it. You may forget about it, but that never means that that image is removed from you. So when Jesus likens this, the lost sinner to a coin, he's saying every lost person has a kind of value. And this makes sense then when God looks at the lost, why he's filled with compassion. It would make sense if God looks at those he saved and is filled with love, and then he looks at those who aren't saved and goes, ugh. But because they all have the image of God, he's filled with compassion when he looks at the lost, which encourages us, so should we. 
You know, it makes sense when, when God looks at sinners in the Bible can actually truly say that God desires all to be saved. And so should we. You know, this changes the way that we look at the people around us. People who don't know God. People that you know who don't know God. Some people are hostile, vehemently against the gospel, against religion, against Christ. The people you're praying for. You may be praying for somebody who has some interest, and that's why you're praying for them. You might be praying for someone who has no interest, and that's why you're praying for them. But God desires that all, because they have value, be found. He values them. In 1999, um, the government um, started this program. It's called the 50 States Quarters Program. Some of you may remember, they basically began uh, circulating new commemorative coins from each state. So the typical old coins just have the eagle, but the uh, newer ones have, each state has its own um, particular image. And the plan, of course, was, okay, we're going to start this, and over a few, you know, X amount of years, we're going to release all 50 states. Um, and I remember when that happened, my dad went out um, to, uh, I think, Office, Office Depot it was, and he bought these um, really thick kind of folders where they're like displays, and if you open it up, it was a map of the country, and then it had each state, and then they had these little like uh, cutouts. And so basically, when you, bought, when you found like a new coin, you could put it in, and, and uh, man, he had so much fun with that. <laughs> And so he would get so excited when he, because uh, he, he works at a business in the city, so he was working with a lot of actual money, and, and he would sift through it, and, oh, I got the new one, and, you know, put it in. And, uh, you know, one day I, was, I said, Dad, why, why do you care about this so much? And he looked at me, and he says, one day this is going to be worth something. And then my smart aleck brother said, yeah, Dad, it's going to be worth 25 cents a piece. <laughs> that, makes, that makes you wonder, what is the value of the lost silver coin. We said, now the value of the lost silver coin is a day's wages. So in one sense, if I ask you, what's the value of the silver coin, right? Just like a commemorative quarter, 25 cents, you put it in. 10 years later, oh, it's worth so much. How much? 25 cents. So, okay. So you're searching for this lost coin. How, what is its value? Well, in one sense, the value is its value, right? It's um, day's wages. So that's what it's worth. $100. But in another sense, though, when the coin is lost, it's actually of no value in another sense. It has, no, it has an inherent value, but because it's lost, it contributes no value. And so what value is something lost? No value. Just like you get pulled over and you lost, you left, you lost your license. Can I see your license? I don't have it. Well, that's okay. Well, then I'm going to give you a ticket. No, but I have it. Well, if you don't have it with you, it, it doesn't count. So, okay. You can say in one sense the value of the coin is worth a day's wages. It's worth what it's worth. In another sense, because it's lost, it actually has no worth. It doesn't actually contribute to anything. You can't use it in any way. But then in a third way, the coin's value is actually greater than a day's wages. In one sense, the coin has a value that can't be measured economically. And what do I mean by that? The coin's value is greater than its monetary representation because the woman searches for it. You see, the, val- the coin has a value, an inherent value. But the very fact that this woman begins tearing her house apart looking for the coin places a value on a coin that can't be measured. That coin now 
is valued at more than just a day's wages. It was valued at her affection, her desire for it, her diligence in searching for it. Let's say, for example, that you're at work or at school and you're put on a team for a special project. And every member contributes something to the project. And so in that way, every member is valuable. But let's say then the supervisor or the teacher comes and says, well, you know, it's actually probably best if you go to another team and your group shrugs his shoulder and says, okay. Then, yes, you, you had value on the team, but you're not valued by the team. They say, okay, well, that's fine. But if that supervisor, that teacher says, no, you should go to another team. But all your teammates say, no, we want this person. What can we do to keep them there? Then all of a sudden, yeah, you had value on the team, but now you're valued. And that is a totally different thing. In the same way, every sinner has value because they're created in the image of God. But those whom Jesus Christ comes after, those whom Jesus Christ diligently seeks as the woman sought after the coin, are not just people who have value, but now they are incredibly valued. The fact that Jesus Christ has come for sinners, the fact that he has, as this text says, the woman lights a lamp. Why? Because the coin is lost in the darkness. Jesus Christ is the light of the world who enters the darkness to find the coin. The text here says that the woman has to sweep the house. Why? Because in a Middle Eastern house, it would have had dirt on the floor. It was dirty. There was dust everywhere. Jesus Christ comes as a purifier. He sits through the dust to find you. So just as a lost coin is now more valuable because it's valued by the diligent seeking of the woman, so too sinners who are sought by Jesus Christ are valued because Jesus has entered the darkness. He has sifted through the dirt to find you. And just as this woman treasured the coin, she desired the coin, so too that shows us our Savior. He desires us. He treasures us. And of course, the parable breaks down because this woman only has 10 coins. And you could say, well, one coin, I mean, that's 10%. That's a lot. But Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, has all the treasures of heaven. And yet he still comes after even just one. By coming after you, by giving up his life in your place, places in you a value that is so much greater than any other value you could derive from the world. You are more precious to Jesus than silver or gold, pearls or diamonds, rubies or emeralds. But here's the thing about the coin. You see, in the other parables, if a sheep is lost, he recognizes he's alone yeah, maybe he cannot find his way back to the fold, but he can bleat and bleat and bleat until someone finds it. In the parable of the prodigal son, we know that the emphasis there is that when the prodigal son comes to realization, he returns home. But this lost coin can only just sit where it is until it is found. Until somebody comes for it, it is absolutely helpless but it is not hopeless. It's not hopeless because the coin belonged to the woman, and because it belonged to her, she searched diligently for that coin. In our sin, in your sin, you were helpless. 
totally incapable of getting yourself out of your own condition. That's why Paul said in Ephesians that you were dead in sin. Not sick in sin, but dead in sin. But although dead in sin and though absolutely helpless, you were never hopeless. Why? Because you belong to God. You were a coin with his image on you, so he came to diligently seek after you. And this is how loved and valued you are by Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. You may be helpless, but you are never hopeless. There is a Savior who diligently seeks after just one. There is a Savior who searches high and low and far to find just the one. He has found you. Amen. Praise God. But he is searching for others. Jesus did indeed come to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission statement in Luke 19. But although Jesus is now seated in heaven, through the gospel being shared and witnessed, he's still searching. He is still seeking because there are still those who are lost. And now God continues his search through you, through the church, through you and me. He is still seeking. He is still searching. And we have the assurance that he will find all that he has lost. Now, as we finish up this parable, I just want to give quick, three quick challenges to us as a church. The first is this. If Jesus has great joy when the lost are found, will we be a church that also rejoices over the lost being found? If Jesus has great joy when the lost are found, are we willing to be a church that also rejoices when the lost are found? You see, when this woman, she finds her lost coin, she calls her friends and neighbors. Verse 9. She calls her, together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, God invites us to share in that joy. The question is, are we willing to be a church that desires this kind of joy? Are we willing to be a church that doesn't settle for a joy, any kind of joy that is less than the joy that fills heaven when the lost are found? You know, St. Bernard de Clairvaux, he once said that a sinner's tears of repentance is the wine that angels drink. The sinner's tears of repentance are the wine that angels drink. Wine, of course, here being a drink of celebration. Do we long for this wine as well? You know, sinners coming to Christ is the great cause of heaven's joy. My question is, what is Cornerstone's great cause of joy? I know one, eating good fellowship food. <laughs> Maybe being filled with good gospel teaching. Joy in being comfortable among familiar people. Comfortable around things the way they've always been. But are we willing to seek and desire a greater joy? You know, there are lots of reasons to be discontent with the churches that you attend. I mean, people have a lot of reasons. There are only a few are legitimate. I think one legitimate is if a church finds its joy, it settles for joy less than the joy that fills heaven and the lost being found. In this life, if we go to great lengths to get joy from the small pleasures and comforts of this world, if we're willing to pay for joy, sacrifice for it, invest in it, endure, wait patiently, then 
really we should be investing in a joy that will carry over into eternity and that we get to share with God's angels. The joy of the lost being found. Second, if Jesus searched for us, then will will we be a church that's willing to search for just one? I'm not saying we need to evangelize and take over the world. That's not what we can do. But if Jesus searched for us, are you, are we willing to search for just one? You see, the important thing about the way Jesus talks about, uh, compares us to a lost coin is this. Life is not a Disney film. What do I mean by that? When the lights turn off, inanimate objects don't come to life and sing and dance and have fun until the owners come back where the sun rises. That's not how it works. In the same way, if life is not a Disney film, then if a sinner is a lost coin, then he will be lost forever. If a sinner is a lost coin, then she will be lost forever. You know the coins that are collect underneath your sofa, they're only found when you lift up the cushion. You know, the coins that collect in the hard places to reach under your car seat, they're only found when you move the car seat up. Coins that are in the washer that collect, they're only found when you reach into it. In the same way, lost coins, lost sinners are only found when we search for them. Will we be a church that's willing to search for the lost? Will we be a church that's Willing to make a decision to pray for just one person? Are you willing to cultivate an intentional relationship for the sake of gospel witness with just one person? Will you boldly invite just one person to church so they can hear the good news? Will you unashamedly share the reason for the hope that you have within you to those who have no hope? You see, Jesus, Jesus searches and Jesus finds, yes, Jesus saves, not us. But he uses his church as his hands and his feet in the world to do just that. He animates the body of Christ by filling us with the power of the Spirit. And he fuels us with the joy of our own salvation that we would seek and save the lost. And third, let me end here. Jesus' search required diligence. Then will we be a church that's prepared to work diligently? It says here the woman sought diligently. The woman had to search in the darkness and through the dirt. She had to light a lamp. She had to sweep the floor. Yet she counted her labor worth it. It was worth it to find just one. And of course, Jesus has invaded the darkness. He has sifted through the dirt to get us. So then are we willing to be a church that endures a bit of darkness and sits a little bit in the dirt, gets a little uncomfortable for the sake of just one? Are we prepared to go where it's not pleasant to go. Are we prepared to meet where it's not pleasant to meet? Are we committed to endure some awkwardness with people who look different than us and have lived different than us and see the world different than us? You know, darkness is scary because we don't know what's going to come out when the lights are off. The dirt is uncomfortable because we don't know what germs are in the dirt. So we don't want to enter the darkness. We don't want to sit in the dirt in order to find just one. But ultimately, those things can't hurt or kill us because if Jesus already took the sting of death, if Jesus already endured that, then we can put up with it. So if you believe this, as we believe this as a church, we need to become a church that is willing to endure all things for all people that we might win some. 
This is the way the gospel transformed Paul so Paul could live uncomfortably. This is the way the gospel transformed the early church so the church lived counterculturally. And this is the same gospel that can transform us to be a church in the 21st century that is seeking. In God's kingdom, the lost and the found, that actually works. So that means when we go search with him, we don't have hope that the lost will be found. Huh? No, no, we don't have hope that the lost will be found. We have confidence that the lost will be found. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word and the way that your word really does confront us. Jesus, in the same way that you confronted the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and you got them to change their paradigms, and you challenged them, and you pressed them, and got them uncomfortable, even got them angry. I pray, God, that if it's your will, that you will have done the same today. As your word continues to be powerful, it continues to be your living word, that it will have pressed us and made us a little uncomfortable. Father, I thank you for the way that you gently rebuke us when you know that gentleness is the best way. We thank you that you strongly discipline us when you know that that is the best way. I'm sure this sermon hit us in different ways, but I trust you, Holy Spirit, that it's hitting us in the way you want it to. I pray, God, that we would not quickly forget, as James says, like one man who looks in the mirror and walks away having quickly forgotten what he looks like, but that as your word pierces and continues to transform us, as we continue to meditate on the gospel of one who sought after us, who sought diligently, labored to find us, that we also, in turn, as recipients of great grace, would be transformed and empowered in the same way. God, you are doing a work in our hearts. You are doing a work individually. You are doing a work corporately. Continue that work, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who entered the darkness and sifted through the dirt, And the love of God, the Father Almighty, who sent his Son to search for us. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who takes the gospel and works it into our hearts, transforming us from the inside out. May the blessing of this triune God be with you, God's people, both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear to the dismissal? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. Friends, go in peace.